You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode of Gators Breakdown is brought to you by my bookie. Double your first deposit up to a thousand dollars. Head to mybookie.ag and use promo code GATORS to activate the offer. Bet, win, get paid at mybookie. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I am your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SCC. Joining me on this episode is Will Miles from his site, readandreaction.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at WillMilesSCC. Will, man, the uh, the Gators are banged up a little bit, a, a banged up team right now, but that's not stopping them from progressing and winning games so far this season. Uh, they found a way to start 4-0 and more than likely going to start the season 5-0 like many predicted, but it... It does look a bit different than expected. Injuries all over the field, including, of course, a quarterback with Felipe Franks going down last week. Young guys getting some playing time and building depth uh, in this first you know, third of the season now. Uh, also, run game hasn't been there. Uh, the record is where we thought it would be, but the path there is a little bit different. Yeah, but I think that's true with every year, right? You, you never quite take the path that you expect, I think, in – you know, back in even 2008, that was one of those things where the old Miss loss early on was certainly something that nobody saw coming, but then the good things came from that. And and I think you're sort of looking at the same thing here, not, not necessarily a national championship, but you've seen the team progress. You've seen progress. You've seen um, young guys step in and get some time. And certainly 4-0 is 4-0, 5-0 after next week, most likely. And then you get into the teeth when you start getting into that stretch that we've been talking about basically all offseason. And, uh, you know, we really get to see what the team's made of. Well, one thing, uh, I guess it's changed a little bit, uh, but uh, the tailgate scene, and you've been there, Harmonic Woods. I tell you what, uh, for Tennessee and it being a noon game, uh, it, talking to the guys there, uh, they even said it might have been the best noon tailgate ever. Well, I mean, those guys are up at 5 in the morning, even if the game's at 8 at night. So, Yes, <laughs> so. I was there at 6.30, so it was the earliest one that I've been to there with those guys. <laughs> well, they definitely get out there early. It's a good time. So glad you were able to have a good time. Certainly had a lot of people tweeting about you being out there. And uh, you're a celebrity, man. Uh, no, I'm still getting used to that part of it. But uh, we'll see. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot of fun with those guys, too. So uh, many more, many more to come uh, as well. So... Before we get into this episode and, and, and talking about these Gators and uh, you know 4-0, but uh, just kind of the way they're they're looking, what, what they're looking like is a little bit different. We'll get into to some of that there and Will's latest article that you can find at Read and Reaction uh, as well. But before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown at news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the podcasts there, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, live on YouTube as well as where you can find Gators Breakdown. Uh, many of you uh, watching this live there now. So thank you very much. When using those services, please share, rate, and review the show. And on social media, follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. 
Also, every week at News 4 Jax, the News 4 Jax exclusive, talking with Troop, former Gators tight end Ben Troop, joins me once a week this season over at News4Jax.com. He gives his thoughts like only he can. And you know Ben brings it every time. So uh, a lot of good insight there uh, from Ben is what you've been getting on, uh, on Talking With Troop. And that's exclusively at News4Jax.com slash Gators Breakdown. Well, uh, so yeah, you know, we'll, we'll go to uh, back to the Tennessee game a little bit. So everybody got my thoughts and Will Salmon's thoughts uh, on, on Kyle Trask, but uh, everybody's wanting your opinion as well. Uh, you've de- you detailed uh, in, in length. Uh, you know, a couple of plays specifically, but uh, Kyle Trask, and we all wondered how he do, how he would do coming in as a starter, and we expect to see Jeremy Pruitt dial up some defensive formations to try and confuse Trask, and for the most part, Trask handled it well, and uh, you know, it, it, you released your, your latest at, over at Read and Reaction that detailed Trask performance and, and made some throws down the field uh, that were quote easy pitch and catch throws because Trask made the correct read. Uh, against defenses that did something different than their pre-snap alignment indicated uh, is what you detail in your article there. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had somebody who's done that at Florida, at least on a consensus, consistent basis. It's actually interesting. You know, early on, Pruitt had his defense aligned to do one thing, and then after the snap, they broke into a different coverage, and they were doing that, I think, to confuse Trask. And, and Trask was able to exploit it. The throw down the middle to, to Pitts was something where they lined up in what looked like a single high safety look and then sprinted into a cover two after the snap. Now, when you try to do something like that, you try to disguise it, it leaves the linebacker in a really rough situation having to go one-on-one with Pitts and sort of having to sprint from his position because he's not necessarily um, positioned the way he would be normally if you were just giving that defense away at the start. So, you know, Trask took advantage of that was able to sort of do a similar thing on a on a different defense on on the deep throw to Swain for the touchdown that really sort of put the game away. So very, very impressed with the way Trask played. I mean, he played much better in the first half than he did in the second half. Um, made one bad throw, I would say, was the, the throw that he made to the outside to crawl that didn't quite get there, kind of floated it out there in between the safety and the corner. Um, you know, you would have liked to – like you'd like that window to be a little bit wider if you're going to make that throw, and then the throw to Grimes. Uh, that one's that that's one where you know I don't blame Grimes for it, but I think you'll live with that kind of throw because if he catches it, it's a touchdown. Maybe five percent of the time it turns into an interception, and most of the time it's a harmless incompletion. But in this case, Tennessee was able to get the turnover. Yeah, I kind of go, go back to that throw to Grimes. I remember watching South Carolina and Alabama and Helensky through a very similar pass against Alabama's defense. His receiver came down with it. And yeah, it wasn't really the smartest of throws, but his receiver came down with it. And lo and behold, it was a it was a great throw because the receiver caught it. So it's, uh, yeah, well, I mean, there, there are times where you want your quarterback to take a shot, right? Yeah. Like, and, and this is maybe one of the things I know when, when we were watching the Kentucky game, there were a lot of people who were commenting on the fact that Kentucky was willing to throw jump balls to their guys, and it didn't seem like Florida ever did. So I'm not going to criticize Trask for throwing a ball that's on his receiver's hands in the end zone. I'm not going to criticize the receiver for not catching it. What I'm going to say is that in a tie game, maybe you don't take that shot up 24 points or whatever it was at the time, I think it's worth taking that shot because 
you can, you know, it turns into an interception. So everybody looks at the result and says, poor play. You know, maybe does he does he need to look off the safety a little bit more so that um, Grimes doesn't hear the footsteps of the safety? Maybe a little bit. But end of the day, the ball hit the receiver's hands. He can't blame the quarterback. But it's a tough catch. You can't really blame the receiver. It's just one of those where, you know, as it's falling, the safety comes over and is able to corral it. And that's not something you normally see. Normally a tip pass hits the ground. So um, I'm okay with that one. The one where he threw into the cover, too, is one where he had, you know, basically Tennessee was saying, we're not going to let you get the first down. And he tried to get it anyway. And that's why that turned into an interception. So that one's a learning experience. I think they're both probably learning experiences, yeah. but you know, you want your learning experiences to come when you're up by 30 against the Vols. And, you know, so um, a very positive day for, tra- for Trask overall. Right. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but it was nowhere near, it, nowhere near catastrophic. Those turnovers didn't really hurt Florida uh, all that much. Like you said, maybe trusted his arm too much. And, and you know, without experience, without him being out there, those things are going to happen. He's going to learn what he can get away with, what he can't get away with, or hopefully, hopefully he learns what he can get away with and what he can't get away with. Uh, but that is going to come with experience. Uh, you know, as I mentioned uh, on the last episode uh, there, um, you know, and, and the fumble, yeah, that's inexcusable there to you. Uh, Florida's had some, so some luck there or bad luck from the quarterback position, hanging on to uh, when, when they're getting hit with the ball uh, so far this year. So, you know, offensive line, part of that uh, issue there uh, as well. But yeah, second, half wasn't as smooth as the first half he's mentioning it wasn't all his fault and then you know the biggest one you know the the copeland drop comes to mind there as well yeah well david wonderlick actually on twitter did a really diagramming the fumble play and it sort of indicated that it looked like copeland was the hot read and but he wasn't mm-hmm. looking at trask so trask yeah. was holding onto the ball instead of throwing it to copeland and you know ends up taking the sack now obviously you need to hold on to the ball but again if if your receiver's not looking if your receiver doesn't do, doesn't do the right thing when you see the blitz then the quarterback is sort of a sitting duck so i think that blame probably goes on two people there obviously copeland drops the pass that's pretty much a sure touchdown when it hits him in the hands and then trash numbers look even better but copeland also showed some really nice explosiveness on the end around that they gave to him and then also on a little <clears throat> on a little pass sort of over the linebacker on, I think right before the fumble, actually, where he was, where he was wide open and really made it, you know, you could see the explosiveness, explosiveness that he has. So again, I go back and say with all these young guys, you're going to get a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. I'm sure that if you go back and look at the film, you can probably see some of the younger defensive guys jumping out of gaps or, Mm -hmm. or running past the quarterback or something like that. The reality is, is that Tennessee was just not good enough to make Florida pay for anything. And the Gators made some mistakes, but when they did, Guarantano didn't make the right read or he didn't throw it the right place or he missed a wide open guy and or he threw an interception that was just kind of inexcusable and or the you know wide receiver dropped the ball. There, there was just a litany of errors that Tennessee made and Florida was able to take advantage of it. And you got to give them credit for that. And certainly Florida made its share of plays, um, but uh, but more difficult opponents are coming in the future. Not this next week, but in a couple of weeks. And, you know, there are going to be some things that Florida is going to need to clean up as well. Yeah, we'll get we'll hit that quickly as uh, as well, Will. And the of course it's the run game uh, that Florida's got to clean up here. Um, offensive line's been shuffled a little bit. Richard Garage getting some more playing time uh, as that there as well as Florida tries to find uh, you know some depth to go along uh, and probably some more competition as well. Competition will make this you know we knew about the starting five. It was a 
starting five from the spring, uh, the same starting five all throughout fall camp, early in the season as well. But now you're starting to see Richard Garage inserted a little, uh, inserted a little bit. So maybe, uh, of course, that the staff's not happy with what they were getting out of those five, the, the starting five. You see some shuffling going around, some guys moving positions, being versatile uh, there along the offensive line. Maybe affecting the run game uh, or, or the, the mental aspect of the running backs a little bit, you know, especially by Michael Pirine there. Another game where, uh, you know, just kind of up and down. Sometimes he, he makes something out of nothing, and other times there's more there that he's just not seeing uh, there. I, I, I do believe, uh, you know, it is just speculation and guessing there. I just think the, the offensive line maybe is getting in his head a, a little bit there, and, um, you know, that pretty much what I'm taking away from it, but Damian Pierce comes in. We all know a lot of people wanted to see more carries from him and uh, he made the most of his opportunities. Yeah. I mean, so they, they averaged two and a half yards of carry in the first quarter, 2.3 in the second, 1.8 in the third, and then 5.9 in the fourth. So 12 carries for 71 yards. Now, part of that is, is you're running out the clock. I'm mm-hmm. sure that the Tennessee defense was hot and tired and just wanted to get the hell out of there. So in some capacity, <laughs> uh, I think you can probably maybe blame or, you know, I don't necessarily want to credit all of that running the ball just on just on Pierce and and also you know Pierce had the advantage of having Emory Jones in there too. Yep. And and so having a running quarterback and Trask obviously is not is a threat in certain aspects, but is not a running quarterback in the way that Emory Jones is. And so having Emory Jones in there probably helps as well. Um, you know, I, I think. Florida's running game is what it is. Obviously, they brought in Garage and had him at guard for a little bit. They had him at left tackle, and then they put Forsyth over at right, uh, right tackle. Um, you know, Heggie graded out very, very well in the yep. game. So, you know, I, I think there are things that you can say are positive, and I think that's kind of what we expected. The, coming into the season for the offensive line, the question was really sort of what was their baseline? You know, was their baseline kind of where the line last year started? Okay, well, then we know where they'll be the last four or five games of the year. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that their baseline, at least in the running game, is considerably worse than what they were last year. And so they're sort of building from there, right? So, you know, they're younger, they're inexperienced, and for the most part, they don't seem to be as physical as last year's offensive line was. And, you know, I think you're going to see progression throughout the year, but I think what you kind of probably want to see is that the line be as good or maybe a little bit better than the line was at the beginning of last year by the time you get to the end of the year in terms of the ability to get pushed in the run game and things like that. I mean, Florida against uh, against Tennessee put up a couple hundred yards of rushing. I mean, they were they were not a slouch running the ball the first you know, nine games of the year, the last four, they were just excellent. And, you know, I I don't know that we can expect that excellent. I think what we're sort of waiting for hopefully is the progression to good, because that's what's going to be necessary at least as a bare minimum against some of the guys who are coming up. Yeah. Well, I think we can go back to this Tennessee game a little bit and and look at a scenario. Uh, First, you know, Florida should have been up even more at halftime, even though the score was 17, nothing. Uh, Florida had the yards. Kyle Trash was playing well. Uh, but once again, you know, the run game just couldn't get it going and leading to some inconsistency in the offense. You know, I, I expect a lot of rushing versus Towson this week to kind of work the kinks out. But I, I, I do. Well, I wonder at what point, if it needs to happen, where Mullen starts going away from the run game more. Uh, he's never going to, nor should he completely abandon the run game. And, and I still think there's some creativities that he can still use there to, to get some yards. But just lining up and running it just you know may not happen uh, this season like we expected, uh, and we have to be prepared for that. Uh, one place I think you can see that a little uh, 
a little a little of this is is the drive Florida scored right before halftime. Uh, there was four fifty six left. Uh, the drive started on the Gators' own thirty eight yard line. Still plenty of time to run the ball if Mullen wanted to, but you could tell he wanted to score right there before halftime. So look, he went heavy pass, and you know, looking at the draft chart, uh, looking at it is Kyle Trask uh, passed to the sideline to Tyree Cleveland for sixteen yards. A slant to Tyree Cleveland for eight yards. Um, uh, crossing to, to Josh Hammond for 10 yards. Uh, and then he had an incomplete pass that had holding. Then Damian, the first rush of the drive comes to Damian Pierce for three yards. And then here we go again, Kyle Trask, uh, opposed to Swain for 24 yards. Damian Pierce runs up the middle for four yards to play after that. Uh, then another pass, you know, we're here close to the goal line here. Kyle Trask to Van Jefferson for four yards. Then Damian Pierce scores uh, with uh, one yard out. and it was a drive summary of nine plays, 61 yards. They used all four four minutes and 56 seconds. Trask was five of six passing and completed his first three. Uh, you know, Florida wanted points before halftime and went to the pass to do so. So nine plays, five of six passing for, for Kyle Trask. So, you know, I do think this shows a sign of progress, Will, that we've known Dan Mullen to have his best success with a powerful run quarterback and with a mobile quarterback. But we've also known him to be able to adapt to his personnel. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I didn't see this these run-blocking issues uh, of the offensive line being as big of an issue as they are now, but it is. The potential was there for this to be the case, given the inexperience together as a unit. But there's, you know, there's still plenty of time to get it fixed this year. But in the meantime, you have a deep wide receiver core, an emerging Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Tony out still injured, Copeland being, being sprinkled in in some of those plays. Uh, you've had you know, quarterback so far this season be very efficient at distributing the ball. I don't know how much the staff emphasized the passing game in camp because of the run blocking issues, but it does look like the offense won't completely shut down if the run game isn't going. At some point, we know you just mentioned it, the run game is going to have to get going. It's going to have to come around, but at least we can see progress through the air that's carrying the offense right now. Sure. And I mean, I, I think, you know, you sort of asked when would Mullen start relying on the passing game? He's been relying on it all season long. Yeah. So you you look at the Miami game, they had, Frank's had nine attempts in the first half, 18 attempts in the second half. Um, if you look at the game against Kentucky, Frank's had 12 attempts in the first half, and then him and Trask had 18 in the second half. And I know I diagrammed after that, or I, I broke down after that play, or after that game, that basically they went away from having first down runs you know, after the first two drives of the game, and then they never went back to it again. They, they threw on first down pretty much the rest of the game, other than maybe a kneel down at the half, and then a kneel down, and then runs at the end of the game when they were trying to put the game away. So again, you look at Tennessee, you sort of diagrammed that they had the, um, you know, that when they needed to score, they decided to go to the air. And that's really because the offense is Jekyll and Hyde. I wrote about this a little bit in the article, but the idea that, you know, if you gain 15 yards on a pass and then one yard on a run, well, you've averaged eight yards per play. But you know you're still sitting there second and nine, mm-hmm. and, and so yeah, it's all about when, it's all about when you do it too. Yeah, and, and, you know, well, down I mean, distance. Yeah, and it's just different than a twelve yard pass and a four yard run, right? Yeah. Which is still eight yards worth of eight yards per play. But now you're sitting there second and six, and Florida is almost never in second and six these days. And so you know, when do you take shots deep? Well, you know, typically you take shots deep after an eight yard run. It's second and two. You figure you can get it. 
on on third down if you need to and, and they haven't been able to convert third downs real well and they haven't been able to convert fourth downs on on the ground either so this is the second game in a row where the quarterback run has been stuffed on a fourth down and they haven't mm-hmm. been able to get that and to be honest that's pretty much like a turnover so you have that play on offense and you know you're right i, I looked at it at the end of the half and said geez they've got 204 yards through the air and they you know they've got 250 yards total to 88 for Tennessee and they're only up 17, nothing and barely up 17, nothing, right? I mean, it could have been 10 if P Ryan had happened to slip up a little bit before he fell there at the end of the half, you know, he gets into the end zone and then the play stands because mm-hmm. they called it a touchdown on the field. You know, had they called it, had they not called it a touchdown, then Tennessee gets out of there down 10, nothing. And it's just sort of, you know, I would have gone into halftime jacked at that point. Cause you know, you haven't, you still got a shot to win the game, but, so I, I think these things. Yeah, I, are, I messed up there before we go along. Yeah, P Ryan had on the last play of score. I, I completely glossed over that last play there. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I think they're gonna. So I suspect that one of the reasons why Mullen has has been so patient with the running game is that he recognizes that he's going to need it going forward mm-hmm. and that you know that there have been a couple of times where he's he's gotten kind of close there against miami and against kentucky where maybe he stayed with it a little bit longer than he should have and uh you know and and so in the game against tennessee at some point he just said ah the heck with this i'm gonna start chucking the ball around a little bit and you know the other thing is is that you know trash threw the ball going right down the field on, on that first drive, 75 yards. I think it was like a minute or no, it was like two minutes and 10 seconds or something for them to score on that opening drive, you know, hits the big deep pass though. That was a little bit underthrown. And then he, it was a really nice read on the throw to pits, but he almost overthrew him. And it's just one of those things where everything sort of worked out perfectly for Trask. I mean, you know, the play to pits actually reminded me of the play against Miami where, where Frank's hit Freddie Swain in the hands a little bit high. It gets tipped and gets picked off. It's like, you know, if anything sort of is a microcosm of Felipe Frank's time at Florida, that's what it is, is when he throws it a foot high, it gets tipped and intercepted. And when Trask throws it a foot high, it gets caught and turns into a touchdown. So, <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, I think Mullen has already decided that when he needs points, he's going to go away from the run. And at some point, he's going to have to use the pass to open up the run. And you just got to hope that the windows are wide enough when you get against the teams that really are talented that you can that you can do that sort of thing. Because eventually, you're going to play against a team that has a pass rush and can still play zone behind it. And the windows are going to be smaller. And the question is going to be, can Florida either run them out of the zone or is Trask good enough to find the to find the uh, you know, to find the one guy who's open just enough, fit it in the space and move him down the field. I, I suspect they're going to need the run at some point this year. And so, you know, anything they can do to develop that obviously is going to be something they're going to have to do. All right. We'll move to the other side of the ball. But before we do, you guys ready to bet some football this season? And then if you are, then my bookie is a place to bet on football every week. Whether you want to make a national title bet or wager on this weekend's games, my bookie has you covered. My bookie is always the right play. You bet, you win, they pay. Have some fun with betting this season. My bookie lets you bet on which college coaches will get fired, who will make the college football playoff, or win the Heisman Trophy. You can even bet on halftime lines, live odds. If by the second half it looks like your original bet's going to lose, you can always just take the other side. Also, not everybody out there allows you to do this, but my bookie allows you to bet on FBS versus FCS games. Right now, double your first deposit over at MyBookie. Use promo code GATERS to activate the offer. Visit MyBookie online today at MyBookie.ag. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E dot A-G. 
And don't forget to use promo code Gators when creating your account to claim the bonus. Bet, win, get paid at my bookie. Well, at the you know, on yesterday's episode, the last episode, uh, highlighted a couple players to, uh, there. One more player I think deserves to be uh, highlighted even even more uh, is Jonathan Gennard. Um, there's, I'm not sure there's a coach out there that has hit the transfer portal as well as Dan Mullen and, and this staff ha- has done uh, in Mullen's two years here, and, and that continues with Jonathan Grenard. Been a four since the first game versus Miami when, when the Gators had 10 sacks. Uh, the familiarity with Todd Grantham can't be overstated, and, and knowing the expectations and the scheme has really helped Grenard become a force so far this season. Well, we've preached versatility with this defense, and and with Jabari Zuniga out versus Tennessee, Grenard needed to play more traditional defensive end uh, instead of Buck. Those positions are kind of more interchangeable in, in passing situations, but Grenard was making plays in the in the pass defense and rush defense. He, he had four tackles, two tackles for a loss, uh, a sack, the forced fumble, um, three pass deflections, one of those pass deflections saving a touchdown in the first quarter. Uh, in Tennessee, tight end Austin Pope was wide open in the end zone. Grenard makes a play, batting the ball to the ground. The next play, Tradine makes the interception in the end zone, and Tennessee doesn't score a touchdown for the game. And Pro Football Focus graded Grenard's performance with a 95.1, 95.1 run defense grade and a 90.3 pass defense grade. Uh, on the season, Grenard is tied with linebacker Ventro Miller for second on the team with 16 tackles, leads the team with three and a half sacks. As four and a half tackles for loss, ranked second behind Jeremiah Moon's five. Willie, he he plays with a motor. He's always going. Really shows his value uh, with you know, being able to play defensive end or the buck position. Uh, Jeremiah Moon and Chris Bogle received more snaps at buck since Grenard could fill in an end, play more end in this game against Tennessee. Those two combined for a, a sack and a half and two and a half tackles for loss. Well, the exciting thing here is you know Grenard's production has come two games without Zaniga. So, you know, in the last two games, basically, you have Grenard, Bogle, Moon out there making plays in SEC games early in the season. So hopefully by the time Auburn comes into Gainesville in two weeks, we get we get the pairs of Negan and Grenard back together. It's going to be scary for, you know, for opposing offenses when those guys are out there at the same time and there's confidence in it, uh, of backing up those guys with others that have been able to build some depth so far this season. Yeah, I mean, Grenard's been really, really good this year. In fact, before before the game this week, Olivia Graniola, one of my one of my writers over at Read and Reaction, had a profile on him, just sort of talking about what he's done this year up and up through the Kentucky game, and obviously he shined out real well against Tennessee as well. But the one play that 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 she had diagrammed in that article was the the interception that Sawyer Smith threw to Sean Davis that really sort of gave Florida the opportunity, gave him a short field to come down and take the lead in that game. And Grenard, they tried to block him with a tight end, and he just threw him aside like a rag doll and was closing in on. Smith right as he threw that interception and you know it was max protect and Grenard was still getting to the quarterback and and that's one of those things where um, you know Florida's defensive line has done the job this year particularly um, you know they didn't get as many sacks against Kentucky but they were still putting pressure on Sawyer Smith especially in the second half and really in the fourth quarter and were able to 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 really lock down Kentucky and they've done that for stretches this year so you know, against uh, against Miami, there was an entire quarter. I think the third quarter, Miami had you know minus two yards when Florida was sort of able to. Uh, Florida's offense was struggling a little bit towards the uh, 
you know, it, most of the third quarter, and then they got the drop punt and were able to convert that into a touchdown towards the end of the third quarter. Same thing against Kentucky. I mean, Florida's offense was struggling in the second half. Even the defense was struggling to get off the field. And then in the fourth quarter, they just locked down Kentucky. So against Tennessee, it was sort of the same thing. I mean, the first half, the Vols had 88 yards, 3.7 yards per play. Really, the only time they got into Florida territory was after the Trask fumble. And then they were able to get a stop down there. Now, you know, some of the reason they got that stop was because of Tennessee. But, you know, you get multiple turnovers and a half. You keep somebody to 3.7 yards per play, um, you know, 1.7 yards per rush on the ground. You know, as as much as we've harped on on Florida's offensive line being able to unable to get push, the opposition hasn't gotten a whole lot of push against Florida's defense either. And, you know, you start looking at some of the underlying metrics and Florida's defense is starting to be, you know, in most metrics, a top 20 unit in the country. And that's important because if you're going to be one dimensional on offense, then you're going to need, a, need the defense to step up a few times and give you a few extra opportunities. Yeah, I mean, the last two games, they've shut down, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee not to be able to score. You know, Kentucky, I mean, Tennessee didn't score a touchdown the whole game, but neither one of them scored in the fourth quarter. Uh, that was really imp- important going back to the uh, Kentucky game, uh, as tight as that game was. So, um, uh, M- Mullen went on and, and was asked about Grenard today in his uh, press conference as well uh, and says his hard work and, and personality has been noticed by his teammates and it helps the rest of the team because it shows up uh, on game day. He's earned everything. Uh, and leading by example, and well, that caught that caught me just because you know it, it, I mentioned you know Bogle and Moon and guys who really you know first of all one but one's a true freshman out there, Mamou Diabate's out there as well, uh, getting playing time in, in these SEC matchups. Uh, it was good for a guy who hasn't been around campus not even a year. He transferred in, yeah, he had some familiar familiarity with Todd Grantham, but he's really come in and and really was as looked at as a leader looking as a guy these young guys can already look up to so not only is he just a good player it does seem he's setting an example of of how to go about it the right way how to practice uh maybe the year off last year when he got hurt in in the first game uh at, uh, at louisville against alabama you know sometimes you know that can really you know set a player down and make them think about the things they miss uh, a little bit he was able to he missed all of last year you know, not really taking things for granted. He can probably share that message as well. Uh, so, you know, Jonathan Grenard, I don't know if it can really be stated enough just how valuable he is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, with Ja'Kai Polite last year, one of the big questions coming into this year was Grenard going to be able to to replace his production. Mm-hmm. And I think he's actually not only replaced it, I think he's been better than Polite was last year, at least through the first four games. And that's kind of hard to that's kind of hard to swallow when you figure how dominant Polite was against Tennessee in in that win in Knoxville last year. But Grenard has been just as good, and he's been just as good without having the running mate of of Zaniga next to him. So, you know, like you said, when Zaniga comes back, you wonder whether that opens up some things and. And certainly um, being able to have both of those guys on the outside in, in some of the games that are coming up. I mean, you know, Joe Burrow has been chucking the ball all over the place, but he has not seen defensive ends like Grenard and Zaniga. And so it's going to be a little bit of a different animal, especially compared to like Vanderbilt. So, um, you know, obviously that's going to be important. Florida's defensive line is really the strength of the team. Mm-hmm. Um and, and even with Zaniga out, it's been the it's been the strength of the team. And in some ways, having Zaniga out might be a little bit of a blessing later in the year. One, because he's going to be fresher coming into some of these games. But the other thing is, is that the guys like you mentioned, Bogle and and Carter, and those guys are getting playing time that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise in big time SEC games. And so that's only going to benefit. You know, if you can bring in Bogle because you've got depth now, because you can trust him to be out there. 
then you can give Zuniga and Grenard a blow when they need it in one of these big games so that they're ready to go for the fourth quarter. Well, anything else catch your eye uh, from the Tennessee game in the defense? You know, I know they created turnovers. Uh, really, you know, the Miami game was the only game you know where you would like to see more turnovers uh, uh, from the defense. And you, of course, forced many a fumble <laughs> in that game. Just couldn't jump on it. Uh, but you know, the secondary really ate up in this game because they 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 started off a little soft uh, earlier in the game against Tennessee. But then as the game wore on, you know, those guys were. And not only the secondary, but the linebackers as well. They were ball hawking, and they were around every pass. They were they were blanketing the the Tennessee receivers. That was one matchup we were you know kind of wanting to see in this matchup is how without C.J. Henderson, how would they match up against Jennings and Callaway? And, you know, Jennings had I think seven catches, but nothing really of note uh, in, in the game. Callaway was really pr- pretty much a non-factor. And pretty much what I, I go back to last week was uh, a thing I was talking on Twitter with Peter Burns last week. He was he, and he picked the upset of Tennessee versus Florida, and then uh, uh, their producer of the show kind of asked me what I thought of the game. I was like, "Yeah, that their their receivers can do something, but they can't do anything if Garantano is on his back." Yeah, I mean, so the one thing that really sort of stuck out to me was that I thought Marco Wilson played really well. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think I think for the first three games of the year, Wilson seemed a little bit tentative. And he seemed tentative, especially coming up in the run game, wrapping up, tackling. There were, especially against uh, against Miami, there were some things where the tackling wasn't necessarily sound. And then, you know, some pass interference penalties that weren't <laughs> that weren't all that great, especially again against Miami. But that's that's sort of been an issue. Um, the play where he jumped into the defensive back and, and caused an interception that Trey Dean got was really a fantastic play by Wilson. Um, I thought I thought there were a couple of plays in the running game where he put his helmet in there and really made sure that he was there and, and was a force to stop the running game as well, which is something we haven't seen for three or four for the first three games of the year. So it was good to see Marco Wilson sort of, um, I thought he returned to form a little bit against Tennessee in a way that he hadn't yet thus far this year. And with CJ Henderson coming back, Kyrie Elam continuing to develop some of those, some of those younger guys getting some time. And then certainly Sean Davis really looks like he's developing a little bit on the backside as well at safety. Um, I think the defensive backs are starting to round into shape here. And uh, you know, that's a good sign with, with some of the games that, ha- that Florida has coming up. Yeah. Four no will, you know, the kind of theme of this episode is it's four no, and it looks different. If you want to, kind of talk about why it looks different on defense it's because you've had to do it with guys that you were kind of counting on not necessarily being on the field uh, right now cj henderson missing a couple games jabari zuniga missing a couple games brad stewart missing a couple games amari bernie uh missing some time as well ventrell miller showing up in the miami game he's kind of banged up right now but you know we didn't we expected amari bernie to be something he is but you know, Ventrell Miller is a guy who's really made a name for himself for early part in the season, and now those freshman DBs also getting a lot of play. Sean Davis emerging at safety. So yeah, the, as much as we preview seasons, and especially as much as we previewed you know the Miami game because of the big game it was, and and all the the headline of being a spotlight game. You know, much like the offense and, and, and more passing than running, you know, this defense is mostly because of injuries uh, of why it looks different and still contributing to a 4-0 start. Yeah, but that says something about the staff's ability to develop these guys and get them ready, especially some of the guys who are early enrollees. But, you know, you look at Kyrie Elam. I mean, he wasn't an early enrollee, right? He just came in in the fall, and he's ready to play now too. So some of that, I think, is because Elam's a really good player. I think some of that is because the staff is adept at getting guys enough to where they can go out there and play. And then I think some of it, at least a corner, is that, you know, it's a whole lot easier to play man-to-man if that's all you're doing. 
as, as opposed to playing zone. So in some capacity, Grantham's defense may be a whole lot more difficult to pick up for the front seven. I think when you're a defensive back, you pretty much, all you really need to know is do you have safety help or do you not have safety help? <laughs> and that's really all you sort of do. So you, and, 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 and don't peek in the backfield. Those guys are doing their job. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, it's, so it's some basic things, but if you're a good cover corner, you're going to excel early in Grantham's defense. I think that's one of the things that we can sort of ascertain. And, and then, you know, you, you mentioned injuries on the other side. Obviously, we we wouldn't have hoped this for Franks and certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't have expected that Franks would be completely out for the rest of the year coming into the fourth game of the year. Um, but that is the situation. And, this, and you know, it's a testament to, to Trask being – being there for for that amount of time and certainly in some capacity to Jim McElwain for recruiting the guy because obviously he's got some talent and it's not uh you know it's not he didn't have offers from everybody and there were reasons for that right I mean it's been well documented but it does make me wonder I I had mentioned this I think on the on the on the fourth quarter thing that I'm doing with with Mike Pfeffer I'd mentioned that I wonder if this is how in the new era of college football that teams are going to need to recruit like would it make sense to bring in a guy who's a lower star talent. If you need two quarterbacks in a class, would it make, you know, so uh, what made me think of this is you had Jacoby Brissett and Jeff Driscoll come in in the same class. And the minute, the minute Driscoll wins the job, Brissett transfers. And all of a sudden then Driscoll gets hurt the next year and you got Tyler Murphy and you get Skyler Morhenwig as the backups. Well, hmm. Florida doesn't have Skyler Morhenwig as a backup. They've got Kyle Trask as a backup because Trask specifically came to Florida to be a Gator and understood that he was going to be a backup, but who was going to get the opportunity to to compete for the job. And he's been given the opportunity to compete for the job. He's been close a couple of times. And now something unfortunate happens to Franks and he's able to step in and he's ready. And, you know, it's not a four-star guy stepping in, but it's a guy who's got three three years at the school and, and two years in Mullen's program and has been able to, you know, You've even got the talk today with Derek King redshirting because his team's one and three or something. I don't know what's going on there. So it just does make me wonder whether you're, the recruiting is going to have to change because of the transfer transfer portal, and and maybe that Florida lucked into it a little bit having Trask come in and having the personality that he does. But you know, is that going to be the way people might want to recruit in the future? Yeah, and one reason is because and Trask. One reason Trask is an even better example is. It's with two staffs. You know, you can understand bringing in a guy like that if you say, okay, I can develop him for three years because I'll be there for, you know, I'll be there for for, for a few years. But, you know, that wasn't the case with Jim McElwain. Uh, Jim McElwain wasn't able to develop him. And you mentioned he's only been in Dan Mullen's system for two years, and he's still developed quick enough, developed well enough to where he can be counted on in these situations. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, I, I believe his first year when he would have had an opportunity to play, maybe he was injured. And then obviously yep. last year when we thought he was going to play against South Carolina, he gets injured during practice and Franks is back in there. And then Franks sort of takes the reins. So it is a little bit ironic, I guess, that he then takes over after Franks is injured pretty severely. And, and you know, he's getting his opportunity. But that's one of the reasons why I don't want to see him run very much. Like if the, if the guy's able to go back there and throw, let him throw. I mean, obviously you want him to run the entire offense, but, um, but I think it's pretty clear where his strength lies. And, and, you know, I think it's pretty clear where Emory Jones strength lies. So the interesting thing will be to see how Mullen uses those over the next three or four games. Um, Cause certainly I think, especially if he needs Emory Jones to get the run game going, um, it'll be interesting to see whether he's willing to upset Tras rhythm in the passing game in order to get that going. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, a couple headlines here uh, before we, uh, b- before we go on this episode, 
Florida Auburn next weekend will be 3.30 on TBS, kind of the only game in the SEC that week. Uh, yeah, I know Towson's this weekend, Will, but that's uh, and Auburn has Mississippi State this weekend, but uh, it's setting up to be a uh, you know top ten three thirty CBS game. That uh, and if you look around the country too, uh, maybe an appearance from uh, College Game Day and with the Gator fans and their feelings of uh, Kirk Herbstreit, that, that one should be fun. <laughs> well, this is going to be an exciting stretch because if Auburn can take care of Mississippi State, then you've got two five and zero teams coming into the swamp. If Florida can defeat Auburn and then LSU can take care of business, well, then you're going to Baton Rouge and it's two six and O teams. Yep. And then, you know, Hey, if you, if you can take care of both of those as Florida, then you're basically heading. I mean, you got South Carolina, but you assume you're going to be eight. No coming in and facing Georgia and who's also going to be eight. No. And I mean, you know, again, last year that game meant something, but if two eight, no teams are facing, I mean, that's basically, I mean, it's an East preview obviously, but it's, it's potentially a playoff game too, because, um, you know, if you're good enough to beat Georgia, you're good enough to beat Alabama, or at least you're good enough to get beat by Alabama's backup quarterback. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, it, it's possible. At this point, you set yourself up, right? I mean, the, the two close games against Miami and Kentucky, I think, were, were alarming early in the year, but there are reasons for it. Um, Florida really has an opportunity to take care of business here, and and this is the teeth of their schedule. Once they get through that, I mean, it's not as if Florida State looks like they're really that tough. Um, Missouri, eh, I mean, we have we we struggle with Missouri, and that one's at Missouri. But again, that's a game that you should take care of. So, you know, really, three of the next four games after the Towson game are gonna are gonna dictate the success or the failure of the season. So, really, that kind of means to me that the Towson game needs to be get out healthy. Like we didn't get out healthy of the UT Martin game. I think that impacted us against Kentucky. You know, just get out healthy of the Towson game. Yeah, and I, I'll kind of put it into preview too, but one to kind of extend that thought, you know, Florida could get up pretty big uh, pretty early. Uh, they should. And don't be surprised if later in the game, you know, Towson starts kind of clawing back, scratching back because of on, on that note, I am getting my scout team players in as soon as I possibly can against Towson. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's like, you know, on kickoffs, fair catch on, yeah. on punts, fair catch. Like you, and, and it seems stupid to say that you're like, you know, just go out and play football. But at the end of the day, they just went out and played football against UT Martin. And all of a sudden you've got sprained ankles for CJ Henderson and, and, you know, Zaniga gets hurt on the first play against Kentucky. And now your two best defensive players are, are on the sidelines. And, you know, it's one of those things where you hope, because these injuries tend to even, the, even their themselves out over the mm -hmm. course of the year. So you hope that Florida sort of had its injury bug issues early in the year and that, you know, they're going to be relatively healthy moving forward. But that's one of the other reasons why I think it's important that they've had garage rotating in at different positions. I mean, if a guard rolls mm -hmm. an angle and garage has never played guard, I mean, what do you do? Right. So getting that sixth guy in there sort of rotating through, I think also beyond just a sort of searching for the right combination, it's also making sure that you've got guys prepared in case somebody goes down up front. All right, and the other big headline, Will, that came out, uh, Pat Dooley here, uh, per sources, Florida has scheduled non-conference game against Utah with the game in Gainesville in 2022 and Salt Lake City the following year in 2023. So over the summer, of course, we got word Florida's going to play Colorado and Florida's going to play Texas. And now a game with Utah is going to be on the horizon just a, a few years away. Well, this one's about pretty exciting. Uh, you, you know, Utah's in the Pac-12 now, so you you have a uh, you have a you know, college football playoff, a big conference 
style team you're going against here from from the Pac-12. A beautiful stadium in Utah as well that uh, Gator, Gators have haven't played in before. So uh, you know, the 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 games against Colorado and Texas are are still about a decade away. But uh, just on the horizon, you have Florida, Utah, Urban Meyer's uh, former school, where Urban Meyer came from uh, before he came to Florida. There are plenty of uh, plenty of storylines here, and if, hopefully, of course, I hope Dan Mullen's still the coaches there. He was at that Utah school uh, as well, so uh, plenty of storylines for this to, to go against a you know another uh, Power Five uh, conference team. Yeah, this is one of those that feels. I mean, based on the way Utah plays now, I think it really makes. It makes sense from a football perspective. It doesn't necessarily have the name brand recognition that, say, a Southern Cal would yeah. have or something like that. I mean, it, you know, to be perfectly honest, when it was first announced, I was like, I'm not going to Salt Lake City. Like, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the more I think about it, the more maybe I will. Like, it's it's a unique opportunity. You probably won't get that opportunity again. Um, it certainly beats a home and home with UCF. So um, I think that, you know, <laughs> you know I, I think that it makes sense to have – it's great that the administration has decided that they're going to schedule these games that, you know, the games against UT Martin and Towson just don't bring in the fans anymore. Mm. And to be honest, why am I showing up for a 50 point win when I can sit there and watch it on my giant 50 or 60 inch TV at home? I understand why people have that attitude and, you know, in some capacity because of where I live, I get to, I get to be a little bit, I get to think out a little bit and have that attitude as well. But you know, anytime you can schedule a power five team, then you don't have to listen to the people saying you've never left the state of Florida. Um, you know, they will have gone to Utah, to, to Colorado, and then, uh, and then to Texas, you know, and then Miami's in there too. So pretty much um, they've probably filled out their schedule about as much as they're going mm-hmm. to, especially since they have Florida state every year as well. So Florida's going to have a difficult schedule moving forward pretty much continuously until, until, you know, the end of the decade. And that's great. I mean, good non-conference games. I mean, Utah in the swamp is going to be a fun one. Texas in the swamp is going to be a fun one. Colorado in the swamp will be a fun one. And, you know, you never really know how good these teams are going to be yeah. in a year or two. I mean, you know, Texas was down for a little while and they're back. They're back pretty well under Tom Herman, but we'll see how long he stays there. Um, Utah was down for a little bit, not necessarily down, but not, not nationally relevant like they were under Urban Meyer, and now they're up there, you know, basically com- competing for the Pac-12 title. Um, and, and so, you know, these things run in cycles, and so I, I suspect that that you know these teams won't be where where they are today mm-hmm. when these games are played. But hey, anytime you anytime you can go play a team that's a quality opponent and prove something about your program, that's a great thing. So I'm excited for it. Absolutely, me too. Before we go here, a uh, big oversight on my part uh, in our game reaction episode yesterday with uh, Will Salmon. I somehow, I was going through the SEC scores and somehow, uh, I think I was just tired from the day before. I don't know. I overlooked the, the, the Georgia's victory over Notre Dame, 23-17. Good thing I did, though, because, Will Miles, you've had some strong thoughts on Kirby Smart the, the last few days that you shared on Twitter and his, co- and his coaching strategy the last couple of days. Uh, well, I mean... <sighs> I don't know how to how to necessarily um, quantify exactly what Smart's worth when he's when he's on the recruiting trail, but I can tell you he's a liability when he's on the field making coaching decisions. Like they're now they're now thirteen and eight against top twenty five teams, and or versus top twenty five talent. They should be better than that. And you know, coming into the game, everybody like and myself included thought they were going to stomp Notre Dame. And you look at Notre Dame last year, and Clemson just basically boat raced them, and and Notre Dame came into Athens and really gave them a rough game. And 
And then, you know, Georgia goes up by, they went up by what? Uh, they basically had an opportunity to either kick a field goal and, and go up 13, or they could go for it on fourth down, run more time off the clock on a fourth and one, and and try to bust in for a touchdown to put the game away. And, and Smart decided to kick a field goal. And that has been an M.O. for him pretty much ever since he got there. He he kicked a couple field goals against Florida last year, and Florida didn't make him pay, but it made that game a whole lot closer than it should have been. I mean, we all remember the goal line stand where, where they basically had the ball at the one-yard line for like five minutes of game time because they couldn't run it in. But then he doesn't go for it on fourth down, kicks a field goal, and Florida's still in the game. And he even did that earlier in the game, too, mm-hmm. where they settled for a field goal on fourth and one as well. And eventually this is going to come back and bite them. And it, and it's bit him against some of his some of the conservative game game play calling during Alabama games has bit them. I, I know I wrote an entire article this past off season uh, because Mike Griffith from the, from the Atlanta Journal Constitution basically um, he, he basically inferred that that Scott Strickland had kept George out of the playoff, and I was very emphatic in saying that no. Um, Kirby Smart kept them out of the playoff. Hey, hey, and well, speaking of Mike Griffith, he's actually on your page today. He he's even calling out Kirby Smart for being too conservative. Well, I mean, here's the deal, right? Like they lost on a they lost against Tennessee in his first year, where there was like a where they they hit a bomb with like 11 seconds left to go ahead. And then they gave a little pooch kickoff that got returned to midfield. And then Tennessee beat them on a hail Mary. It's like, well, you go, well, that's a one in a million shot. It's like, yeah, but if you just kick deep, it's like a one in 10 million shot. Like you're not going to be able to do that. And and then you look at the busted coverage against Alabama on second and 20, whatever. Um, well, they just hand the ball to Sony Michelle in the second half of that game. They're, they're winning that game. Well, and that was one of the things that I criticized in the article that I wrote, because it wasn't necessarily that it wasn't necessarily that they, um, that they let Alabama win on that play. It was that Alabama was in position to win on that play. And one of the things I criticized them for is that they had, they have McCall Hardman at quarterback and handed the ball off to Sonny Michelle on a, on a late late game, third down, it was like third down and two. And they motion from outside and then have Hardman and Michelle in the backfield. Well, Alabama knows what's coming at that point. Like, and all you're really trying to do is run a minute off the clock. And it's like, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm glad you, you've got the wildcat, but you're breaking that out at the complete wrong time. And then again, we all know the fake punt last year with, with Justin Fields, which everyone still gets plenty of mileage out, out of including myself, but there well, he was, could actually say he was being aggressive in that point. It just wasn't very smart. Well, I mean, so <laughs> here's the thing, right. Is that so tie ball game, right. Uh, I mean, it's 28, 28 at that point, there's only three minutes left and you hand the ball off. You hand the ball to, to, to Alabama at midfield. I, I, there are times to be aggressive fourth Mm -hmm. and one in enemy territory up 10. You should be aggressive fourth and one against a Florida team. That's sort of hanging around. You, you should be aggressive. And, and Dan Mullen, you know, even though Trask didn't make the fourth down run the other day, and even though Franks didn't make the fourth down run against Kentucky, that's the right call. When you're fourth and one in the enemy territory, mathematically, it's the right call to make. And my biggest issue with the field's fake punt isn't that you went for it other than the fact that it's fourth and 11. The biggest issue that I have with the fake punt is if you're going to go for it, put it in Fromm's hands. Like yeah. he's your, he's your best player. Go send him out there and let him do it. Don't put it on Justin Fields on a fake punt. Like, yeah, that whole thing just didn't make any sense. So, um, yeah, I mean, if Griffith is making fun of, or if Griffith is criticizing Kirby, he should, because 
you need to make decisions that make sense mathematically. I think if we look at Mullen versus looking at Kirby Smart, you know, Mullen definitely makes decisions on the field that give his team a better opportunity to win. Smart thus far has not done that. And so I think it's shown in some of the, you know, he's got a record of, like I said, 13 and eight against teams that have top 25 talent, but he's always had top five talent which means that he's losing to some teams that he probably shouldn't over the course of over the course of his time there at Georgia and then you look at Florida or at least you look at Mullen in his tenure and um, you got to put a couple of years of Mississippi State in there but he's basically had talent that's been in the 20 to 21 range um, overall and he's got the exact same record as Kirby Smart so he's 12 and 8 against top 25 talent so you know Mullen with less talented teams has the exact same record as, as George's head coach. I think that says something about him. So, you know, there were a lot of people who were, in fact, Gary Danielson on the broadcast was like, well, it's a great thing. He kicked that field goal. Cause now they're up six and Notre Dame needs the touchdown. And I'm like, well, you know, if they would just gone for it on fourth down, the game would already be over. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, look, and your last point there kind of come up to, you know, Peter Burns asked the question this morning. I was listening to, to their radio show and, uh, because of all this, and he asked the question, would you rather have an elite recruiter or an elite X's and O's coach? You know, and, and, you know, I always side with give me an elite recruiter. And I've said it many times, uh, elite recruiting doesn't mean you'll win big, but you're not winning big consistently without it. So, yes, you have, you know, X's and O's coaches sneak into the college football playoff every now and then. But, you know, they're not consistently fighting for college football playoff spots. Uh, elite recruiting has taken Georgia to an, uh, another level previously that they haven't been able to reach, still not being able to reach the pinnacle. Uh, but, you know, that it's not equating to national championships, but they, they're in contention more so uh, than they were. It's just, you know, Kirby Smart's X's and O's uh, have cost him. Uh, and if he continues uh, like this, will continue uh, to cost him. So, yeah, I, I do, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if you give me two blanks, if you if you give me blank slates, give me the guy that can recruit more so uh, than coach, and I and I'll take my chances. Hopefully, he can coach as well uh, there. But uh, you know, if you if you got to pick just one, uh, I'm I'm probably going recruiter. Uh, but that does you know that doesn't necessarily mean one way or the other. Uh, that's the the best way of winning a national championship. Well, I mean, so recruiting is gonna is gonna ensure that you don't lose to Missouri and that you don't lose to Vanderbilt and those yeah. sorts of things, right? Like for the most part, it sort of means there are two or three games a year where you absolutely have to bring your best game and where the coach makes some decisions that might cost you the game. And in the game against Notre Dame, I think it was pretty clear that Georgia was the more talented team. In fact, you could see it in the second half. Notre Dame wore down a little bit and then Georgia was able to sort of take control of the game. And, um, you know, then they played a little bit of a conservative defense and all of a sudden Notre Dame's just down by six again and has the ball back. I, I, I think, you know, I'm always going to side with taking the elite recruiter, but I can tell you right now that I would be raising, raising Kane if Kirby Smart was the head coach of Florida, had all these athletes out there and was struggling like he is because, you know, it took Nick Saban a really long time to get Jalen Hurts and then Tua as his quarterback. And until he did, he really had to rely on his defense. And I mean, Alabama won, won a bunch of national championships with guys who, who were not necessarily elite quarterbacks. But one of the reasons why they weren't in the championship game every year is because their quarterback play, right? That, that the offense wasn't able to be quite as efficient and smarts wasting that right now because Fromm is probably one of the better quarterbacks he's going to have. And 
you know, was good enough to beat Justin Fields out, was good enough to beat Jake Beeson out. And so, you know, he, and he's played at a very high level there at Georgia. And when you got a quarterback playing at that level with all the athletes you got around him, you got to win and you got to win big because that guy doesn't come around very often. And Florida fans know that, right? I mean, we've had, we've had Werfel and we had Tebow and kind of leak in there. And then short of a dry patch for you know the last decade. And if Georgia hits a dry patch at the quarterback spot, they're going to struggle. So you know it doesn't matter how many elite guys you got. If the quarterback plays substandard, you're going to struggle. So again, I sort of look at where, where Smart is. I mean, I still expect Georgia to be there at the end. I likely will pick them to beat Florida. Um, but the more evidence that piles up, um, the more evidence there is that he doesn't make that he makes decisions on the field based on emotion, not based on analytics. And I want the guy who's going to make decisions based on analytics and go for it on fourth down when it makes sense mathematically and not go for it when it doesn't. And so you call a fake punt on fourth and 11, that's a terrible call. You go for it on, or you kick a field goal on fourth and one, again, that's a terrible call. He does that pretty consistently. And I don't know why people are surprised when he does it because he's done it his entire career at Georgia. Yeah, and if Georgia fans find their way onto this podcast and listen to this segment, like this is not comparing Florida and Georgia. This is beyond that right right now. I mean, look, you know, Kirby, the last two years, you know, has you know beat Dan Mullen pretty handily the last couple of years. Hopefully that hopefully that's going to shrink sometime, and and, and Mullen's on field acumen can can close the gap that we see as far as talent goes. You know, this isn't a comparison of Florida and Georgia. This is a a look at Georgia. Uh, specifically uh, on the grand stage, and you know, that also will the I think the thing that got on my nerves with this game a little bit is, and you alluded to it just a bit, the narrative about this game is a moving target to me a little bit. Most of the pundits out there didn't think this would be a game, and that Georgia was going to run away with it. And now that the game was closer, it's because Notre Dame proved everyone wrong, and they're much better than they give them credit for. It can't be because Georgia came down to Notre Dame's level. It has to be Notre Dame proved people wrong and went up to Georgia's level. Uh, you know, the truth probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, Georgia didn't get the ground game going, and I actually think, and I actually think Brian Kelly at Notre Dame is a pretty darn good coach. But uh, I do find it funny that the narrative keeps moving just to keep Georgia just to keep Georgia looking like an looking like an elite team. Yeah, well, here's the reality, right? Until Georgia loses, that's the way people are going to categorize it because everybody sees the recruits and expects them to be top tier. Yeah. And so with all those recruits, the expectation is they're going to be great. And so and so that's sort of the glasses that people look through, including myself, right? I mean, I look at yeah. it and say, I see the talent on the field. You know, one guy goes down. Oh, look, there's another five star coming in. And and you you see that and your your opinion can be a little bit can be a little bit clouded by that. But the reality is, is that, and, and Notre Dame is a good team, right? I, I think mm-hmm. the, the reality is as well that Clemson last year, you know, blitzed, blitzed Notre Dame, but they also blitzed Alabama. And so Clemson by the end of last year was playing about as well as anybody you're going to see. And I don't think we necessarily gave Notre Dame the credit that they deserved in some capacity because we didn't know the result of the Alabama game first, right? If they'd have beaten Alabama by what, 35 or whatever it was, and then had beaten Notre Dame in the championship game, I don't think anybody would have said anything about Notre Dame. I think the, <clears throat> the reality is Notre Dame ran up against a buzzsaw, but you know, that buzzsaw still exists and Georgia's going to eventually have to play them. And I have a lot more confidence that Dabo is going to make the right call on fourth down and one than I do that Smart's going to make the call on fourth and one. And to be honest, that's the thing that I'm hanging my hat on when Florida plays Georgia, because Florida's not going to be able to out-talent them. And 
you know, Florida has very, very talented guys, but nothing compared to Georgia. So Florida's not going to be able to out-talent them. And last year that game was, was what, like 13 to what, 14 to 13 going into the, going into the fourth quarter, or right after Frank's hit that touchdown down the center of the field, Florida had been thoroughly outplayed and was still ahead in the second half. And then Georgia sort of took control, but, you know, again, you're not going to be able to do that against everybody. And if you give people an opportunity, eventually it's going to come up and bite you. So, you know, is, is Georgia a great team? Yeah, they're very, very good. Um, are they a championship team? You know, that's yet to be determined because they haven't been able to pull it out when the when it really counts um, in either games against, in both of the games against Alabama the last couple of years. And Alabama's a really good team too, but that's sort of the point, right? That they have equivalent talent. And in those games where they have equivalent talent, the coaching starts to really make a difference. And I think most people are going to take Saban over Smart. And I got to be honest, looking at it, just from a coaching perspective, if you ask me which guy I'd rather have on the sideline, it'd be Mullen over Smart as well right now. Well, one more. Michigan. Woo! You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we put the spotlight on them because Florida played them in the Peach Bowl last year. And maybe without those defensive players, it, it was an indicator of things to come this year because, uh, man, I tell you what, it's uh, it wasn't even close against Wisconsin. Jim Harbaugh, in any, any game where it looks like it can be close to 50-50, uh, his team's not showing up. It's the other team showing up, and it's it, it's it's ugly. I don't know if they. Uh, I don't know the talk. I don't follow Michigan and their fan base all that much. I don't know. They have to be frustrated, but man, just with everything that he come in with and, and kind of turning the college football coaching world upside down with all of his antics that he was doing and coming and opening camps down here in the state of Florida, trying to get recruits. Well, a lot of those recruits that a lot of those recruits that he tried some crazy things to get uh, aren't necessarily panning out on the field. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to be a little bit careful about what we say about Michigan. I, you know, so Harbaugh took over from Brady Hoke who had, you know, he was 11 and two his first year, then eight and five, seven and six and five and seven. So Harbaugh has gone 10 and three, 10 and three, eight and five, 10 and three. And this year they're probably looking at a nine and four season, something like so that. So you're telling me he did better with Brady Hoke's players in his own. <laughs> I, I'm telling you that I think that that I think that Harbaugh is a good coach. I don't know whether he's necessary necessarily elite, but I also think it's hard to get elite guys to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And you know he has been able to recruit top ten, but top ten is still below Ohio State. It's not below Wisconsin, and that's maybe the one place where um, where you could really criticize him is he's lost to Michigan State a couple of times. He's lost to Wisconsin now, and certainly the performance against Army was not exactly all in, awe inspiring the other day. In fact, they deserved to lose to Army and and really should have lost that game. But um, I look at Harbo's track record at Stanford and then and then now at Michigan and and he he hasn't really and even at the 49ers right I mean he got to the Super Bowl but he didn't necessarily win it but in the Super Bowl at least those are players that you've been able to bring in you know via free agency and that sort of stuff whereas you know these are guys that he's developed I guess that's the thing you'd be disturbed by if you're a Michigan fan that he hasn't necessarily developed the guys that he's brought in in the program over the last two or three years to be able to to be able to 
excel. Um, certainly, I think that the expectations at Michigan were very high with Urban Meyer leaving, uh, but Ohio State is still the big boy in that conference. And until until he beats Ohio State, nothing's really going to matter. And in fact, I suspect that if he were to beat Ohio State this year, even if they went nine and four, that many of his sins would be forgiven. So the good yeah. news for Harbaugh is that he's probably got an opportunity still to to win back his fan base. But I understand why they would be a little bit pensive right now because you know the expectation was that they were going to turn into an elite team and that hasn't happened yet but again i think this sort of goes back to um you know you don't expect to lose to army you don't wisconsin's a pretty pretty established program there in the big 10 sort of a top 20 recruiting type of team um you know at some point coaching matters and harbaugh at least over the last couple years has has not proven that he's able to win those games when the talent level is equivalent um, or even when it's, when the talent level is a little bit less. And I don't have a chart. I haven't broken down Harbaugh like I did Kirby Smart this offseason. But I imagine that he was not as good against less talent, that he has not been as good against less talented teams as you would expect. And, you know, that's a problem, right? I mean, you can't lose you, – you can't almost lose home games to Army. You can't get – you can't get boat raced by Wisconsin and expect to win the Big Ten, but you know they're two and one. They still have an opportunity to turn it around. And and uh, as fun as it is to see Michigan struggle, um, I suspect that by the end of the year they'll probably right the ship at least enough to where you know they'll enjoy their trip to the Citrus Bowl. Yeah, off the cuff, I think where he struggles against Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State, and Wisconsin. Everybody so, else. So everybody the else. Games. Yeah, the important games. Exactly. So. That, uh, that's the that's the ones that, that that give him some trouble. Well, uh, what you got? I know Towson, not a huge game, not the the excitement level uh, of uh, the previous two or the or the onslaught that's about to come up. But what you got coming up on uh, read reaction this week? Yeah, so I think Olivia is going to be going to be previewing Sean Davis or profiling Sean Davis a little bit, and then I'm going to be writing about recruiting. So you know, one of the things that um, we've certainly seen is some of the depth this year that that Florida's had to rely on. Um, and the question becomes what, what goes on in 2020 with that recruiting class and sort of some of the attrition from the 2019 class as well and where we might start to see some effects from that. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not all a terrible story. I think there's actually um, some pretty decent recruiting stories to tell um, based on what's going on. But certainly um, it's not Kirby Smart's level of recruiting, and, and we'll see. I mean, maybe it's going to take a win against Georgia to get to that point. All right, that's Will Miles. You can find his site at readandreaction.com to get all the info that he just put out there about recruiting uh, coming up this week. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>